From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, have you ever watched the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Yes, I think it's probably on every Christmas in Britain. And I'm now thinking, why is he asking me it's not Christmas? Ah, I know. It was because there's a run on a bank, right? That's exactly right. And we have just the person to discuss this and other topics related to the role of banks in the economy. Ah, I can't wait to hear it. Hans-Helmut Kotz is a visiting professor of economics at Harvard University, a senior policy fellow of the Leibniz Institute for Financial Research at Goethe University, Frankfurt, and on the economics faculty of Freiburg University. Hans-Helmut, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Michael. Let's start at the very beginning. You know, you're, you have all of these, these roles where you're able to do research and teach, but how did it get started? You know, where are you from? What did you study in school? And how did you end up where you are today? Uh, so I'm, I'm from a region which is pretty in Germany, pretty close to the Luxembourg-Belgian-French border, which gives me a major advantage. My dialect, my mother tongue is Luxembourgian, which is a different language, by the way, from German. What I did for between the age of six and 18 was mainly playing what Europeans call football. But we had a very demanding school nonetheless. So it's a, it's a little bit of a backwater, was a backwater part in terms of the economics. But we had a very demanding school and it got me very early interested in what Europe, what Americans now call place-based policies, so regional economics. That's what I found always interesting. Why do regions have difficulties? How can one help regions? At university, I got fascinated for a funny reason in monetary theory, monetary economics. So I was taking notes from my fellow students, and it got me hooked. At the time, this was mainly about Macro, macroeconomics in terms of monetary theory or monetary policy. And there we used much of U.S. literature. So names nobody knows anymore, Eckley, uh, Preynard, and others. Great, really great textbooks. And I continued working on that because it, it substituted for my incapacity to be a, a professional football player. And ever since, I'm, uh, I've been very much interested in, in these issues, also teaching them for quite a long while, because the best way to learn is to teach. And then I was for a very long time, 16 years in, in a bank. That was a bank which had pretty large balance sheet, not many employees. It was a wholesale bank, and it was mainly about fixed income and public sector credit. So it was one of the 10 largest banks in, in, in Germany, and I was very early on chief economist. I stayed there until uh, 1999, when I moved on to, to become president of what one calls in Germany Landeszentralbank, which is something like a Federal Reserve, if, if, if you like. And uh, I've been fighting, by the way, having lots of arguments during my time as a chief economist with Bundesbank. I never shared Bundesbank philosophy, which was about money supplies driving inflation and nothing else, which was deeply flawed. If you might think of it, uh, for example, in the, in, in, in the wake, uh, in the upshot of the great financial crisis, when central banks balance sheet exploded, what happened to inflation between 2009 and 2020? We had 
we were very much concerned, worried about deflation, actually. So I enjoyed the discussions with friends at, at Bundesbank and became then part of Bundesbank as a president of a local, of a regional central bank. The region has about 12 million inhabitants, had at the time 350 banks, boring, that's Germany, boring banks. So public sector, cooperative sector, and some very interesting private sector banks. So, but I wasn't in charge of the boring part, but I was always involved in some trouble <laughs> shut up. So that gave me lots of learning opportunities about banking. In, 20, uh, in 2001, I moved on to become member of the board of Bundesbank. And there I was really in charge of the boring stuff, uh, namely IT, the operation of monetary policy, which should be boring. You don't want to be in the news because IT is not working. Or you don't want to be in the news because this stuff which nobody cares about, providing liquidity for the banking sector, is not working. Turned out this became a very hot topic in 2007. So the boring part became, unfortunately, non-boring. Here, I do think it's important to refer to how to figure out what policymakers should or would like to do. You, you have to refer and rely first on data and secondly on analytics theory. If you just remind us, what was happening in 2007 when it suddenly became exciting? Let me talk about what was happening in, in, in my little country. There was a bank which was deemed to be boring. They were mainly fun, funding, giving loans to robust German hyper-specialized SMEs. They had a great asset side, seemingly. And they actually had a return on equity at the time of above 20%, which was seen as brilliant. They were lauded in the media in mid-July. End of July, suddenly turned out they were in deepest trouble because they had been investing in in a leveraged way, uh, using all sorts of nice gimmicks. We are, we've meanwhile forgotten all the acronyms they were throwing around at the time. And they were in deep trouble because one of their major providers of liquidity was not prepared to roll over. There were so many who were investing in these assets, who, by the way, had ratings of AAA. And there you should know, that in the real economy, a very low percentage point at that time had AAA ratings about in, in the corporate sector, about 3 or 4%. Any idea how many of those structured products had AAAs, Michael? I don't know. Go high. 60%. Plus 10, then you're right. 10 percentage points. 70 percentage points. And that's where theory comes in. You could have taken two views on what was going on there. One view, Nobel Prize, was this is an issue, an issue where information is not distributed in a proper way. Give the market some time to, to sort it out and you find a nice new equilibrium. The great Joe Stiglitz and Weiss and others. So great, great idea. The other idea would have been this is a run. This is a reluctance to roll over and, and a massive incentive to run away. We took the view it's a run. 
Uh, and it is a run not of Michael and Helmut running to his bank in California to draw out money because our somebody who's much more knowledgeable and intelligent than we are is doing it. No, it's a run of big institutional investors who declined to roll over. So the question is, how can you deal with it? And what was done at the time was the ECB, before anybody else, I repeat, before anybody else, added liquidity on a massive scale to the system. And the response to that was uh, remarkable. A UK paper with a journalist whom I really like, normally, wrote, the ECB is going, is panicky and hyperactive. Panicky and hyperactive. Six weeks, la six weeks later, everybody was doing it. And of course, liquidity from then on was given in more than ample amounts because the interbank money market, stuff nobody cared about before, imploded. It's still on the balance sheet of the ECB. So much of the intermediation process is now on the balance sheet of the central bank because the trust between banks has evaporated. Still to this day. It is. Uh, to, it, 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 so uh, much of that it, it, at the time was non-collateralized without any 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 bag up. Now you have some collateralized part, but much of the backing is coming by central banks. It was terrible at the time. So trust and liquidity was at that time incredibly fragile. A major reason, by the way, why capital flows internationally went down. Half of the reduction in capital flows is interbank money markets within Europe. That's the crisis I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of what we see now or what we see currently. This phenomenon of stuff you should have seen before, nobody, not many saw it before, and after the fact, everybody, well, we all knew that subprime was subprime. <laughs> well, not completely fair. Those economists, great economists like Robert Schiller, Yale, Carl Case, and John Quigley, They've been, they've been done a study in, which was published in 2004 in Brookings Papers on Economic Activity on the expectations of those people buying homes in a few regions in the US. And they, the expectations were just beyond physics. And that gives you sort of an alarm bell. We actually did the same, we copied and, and replicated the same work at Bundesbank at the time, strongly criticized. But after the fact, everybody knew Everybody, anybody, and his brother and her sister knew. So that's the important distinction. Exposed versus ex-ante. And to have an idea about ex-ante, you don't need only data, measurement without theory. You need understanding. And understanding comes in varieties. You don't have one model only. You, you try to, to be eclectic, to think about different scenarios. That's the link to today. The idea that if you have long duration assets and, uh, and hike in interest rates will impact economic value, not the accounting gimmickry, but economic value is so old. <laughs> you might have wished to think about that in scenarios ex ante. Well, let's talk about today. As we sit today, there are been a couple of mid-sized banks that have failed in the United States to much publicity. And 
as you described it, some of the challenges have been around some of the long duration assets that they held and interest rates that have been increasing. But as you also said, shouldn't we have thought about that? With that said, if I think about you know the past decade or so, people have asked, you know, will interest rates go up? Will inflation accelerate? And it just hasn't. And so how should the decision maker, whether you're the CEO of a bank or a regulator, think about that? Because, you know, you, you've seen these people talk about it for a long time, and then a long time it just never seemed to arrive, and then it did. So how? what's the way to think about that? Inflation turned out to be nasty, really nasty, beginning sometime in 2020, 2021, when there was a debate about Team Temporary, to which I belonged, still belong, and Team Permanent. And what is interesting is to see now coming up different views on models, on interpreting the data. The old-fashioned model was money supply. If money supply goes to the roof, inflation goes to the roof. Didn't happen. Then you had other ideas, too much demand. We call it demand pull. Third idea was cost push, costs increasing because all of these bottlenecks. A very old idea which had been forgotten for 30 years was demand shift. During COVID, we suddenly all shifted to real stuff, now shifting back to services, supply chain constraint. A fourth idea now coming up is about conflict between those who have an, a claim on the product and claiming more than the product can deliver. Just recently, a paper came out by Ivan Wernick and, and colleague from MIT just a few days ago, taking up this idea about social conflict. By the way, a very old idea, a famous American e economist, at that time famous American economist, nobody knows him anymore probably, Martin Pronfenbrenner, made exactly this argument. Uh, inflation as a device to deal with conflicting claims on a product. He called it inflation as a social mollifier in the 50s. And uh, there was another idea by Bob Prothorn, a heterodox economist to which Werning refers in his paper. This is a conflict about labor, entrepreneurs claiming, claiming more than the product delivers. The security valve is inflation. So here we are. We have lots of different theories and talking of Europe, for example, there are environments where you have ways to deal with inflation which are very different across European countries. Let me give you the example. Currently, you have the lowest inflation rate in Luxembourg, 3%. Highest inflation in the Baltics, between 15 and 17%. They are faced to the same money supply. They don't have a central bank. Very different inflation rates. Why? Well, very different fiscal policy responses. No, basically no cushioning in the Baltics, very substantial cushioning in France and Spain, not so much in Germany. In other words, in understanding these data, you have to think about the institutional context, about in, uh, what, what one would call industrial relations, wage negotiations. If uh, you have very strong labor unions calling for 
compensation. They're not calling for more. They, they are actually accepting real wage cuts. In other places, you don't have them. That immediately means inflation divergence. And I think that's a, a, one of the beautiful ideas which Jim Tobin developed. Jim Tobin spoke of what he called a, a common funnel. So wage policy, fiscal policy, monetary policy work together, interacting together. And the, the upshot is some sort of inflation, which is different across um, economies and time. I'm very curious, though, because, you know, as you were telling your personal history, you talked about place-based views. And yet, as you, you know, you went into central banking and monetary policy, in many ways, that's the furthest from being very place-based, because those policies affect what, whatever the um, currency uh, applies to. But it, what's interesting is what you just described, is that you can still have place-based policy that are often fiscal in in the individual places. And that can actually have an effect on local inflation rates. And is is that where those things intersect between your interest in place-based? Uh, so, you're right. Perfectly right. The Fed was discussing its new strategy in 2018-2019. And they've been looking at regional developments, how they interact with fiscal developments. And that's pretty close to banking structure, pretty close to how the importance of small and medium-sized banks for the financing of small and medium-sized firms in this economy. They don't have access to capital markets for a good reason, much too expensive, too low volumes. Same hold, held true with uh, European central banks. Bundesbank did it. There's an interaction between money, credit, banking, and regional development. So much of the capacity of uh, the northern European economies to adjust to shocks has to do with their access to local banks. The discussion about credit crunch, credit crunches, never really took hold in in those economies where you have a banking structure which is close to the locals, which also means that there's much less of a concentration than, than you have it in economies where the overarching funding resources is capital markets because they cater to the big ones by necessity. You've been describing some of the benefits of having small and medium-sized banks, but there's been a discussion here in the United States if, in fact, there are large institutions which are too big to fail and you're a depositor, well, won't all deposits flow there as opposed to small, medium-sized banks for whom that implicit or explicit backstop doesn't exist? And there are, of course, some markets, Canada, for instance, where it is primarily a small number of very large banks. And so do those markets suffer or do those economies suffer for the lack of these small and medium-sized banks? Ah, that's a good point. A good push. If the two of us are depositors, and we are beyond the th threshold of the FDIC, and we see anybody running and everybody, be it money market funds or, or the bigger ones, there's a, a good reason for doing that. The question is, while that is individually rational, does it add up? Is it from a societal perspective beneficial? And the societal perspective is not only about the liability side of the bank balance sheet. The Lord gave us two eyes to, to cite one of my heroes, Paul Samuelson. 
we also would like to understand what's happening on the asset side. That, that was the point I wanted to make. Small and medium-sized banks, local banks, are important for local industry in many places of the U.S. So there's a very much a regional dimension to it, which only underlines your, your questions. How do we deal with the fragility of the liability side? And now, let me give you a, a, a reason why we do, you do not see that in the European case. In the European, in the German case, you have savings banks. They have an association which deals with all the um, economics of large scale, economics of network, so that while they are independent in terms of deciding what, what they do on liability and asset side, much of the back office is run as if it were a large institution. They have one IT infrastructure only, meaning you, you really capture all the economies of scale you can. And that gives some sort of solidity to them. So the fragility on the liability side doesn't arise because um, one sees they are highly effective, highly efficient in terms of cost, but they also deliver on the asset side while running with rather slim margins. So this is terrible for banks in Germany. It's really terrible. You mean banking shareholders? And you somehow have to find a balance. But it's nice for customers, nice for clients. Mm. They have low user cost of capital. But exactly, precisely those banks who delivered on those claims did, did what in, in, in crisis times? They were technically bankrupt. So they were in need of too big to fail. They were in need of subsidies. They are, at the end of the day, they are again state-owned banks. The, the, the issue is really, we are living... <laughs> Probably not in the second best world, but the third best. So it's a little bit dirty and clumsy and so forth. But just look at what happened with this institution in California I never heard of. When they failed, what did they do? They claimed for what? Being bailed out. The guardians of purest of capitalism, you, you can imagine. It, I hear you saying banking should be boring. Banking should... I mean, some people have said it should be a utility, at least the types of banking which are around mm -hmm. deposits and loans. Is that is that your view? And why don't we have that world? If Or, or maybe you're saying that, in fact, the savings banks in, in Germany are exactly that. No, they are not really util utilities. And, and th th there's one view which important people propagated and, 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 and argued for. Jim Tobin was for narrow banking. What's narrow banking? Utilities. Mm. Deposits are not used for playing around in um, subprime. Yeah, I would agree. But that's too boring for me. <laughs> we don't have pure models, pure ideas about that. And you should allow for some sort of accidents at, at, at times. If you, if you uh, want to run a bank without any risk, you're maximizing type 2 errors. Meaning you're maximizing that you do not uh, give loans to businesses which are risky and many of them might not work out, uh, but then you kill anything which is innovative. So you don't want to have it completely risk-free. So utility parts is more about stuff like payments, 
uh, where also issues in terms of com competition policy come comes in. So what we at McKinsey call superstars has often to do with no competitors and hence brilliant margins. And there you need some sort of balanced uh, approach to it. But as uh, what concerns risks, I do think a certain part of credit, which is uh, handed out, should fail. If no credits fail, that's you've, you, you've not been engaged in, in proper banking. Uh, ex ante, they shouldn't. <laughs> uh, but exposed, a certain amount should fail because um, somehow you would like to, to, to handle and to, to, to deal with risk. And I don't think venture capital can completely substitute for that role. I've been stressing too often boring uh, up, up to now. Uh, a boring world might uh, lead us to uh, terrible stagnation, which we don't want, which we cannot need. We need in innovation in, in front of all the, uh, the, the issues we're, we're dealing with. So finding sort of a balance between banks who are running very fast and at times too fast and others who are stay, staying, staying behind. And that's where regulators come uh, come in, uh, because of this inherent tendency to to hurt, because everybody is doing it. You know, one of the best analysis of the two thousand seven two thousand eight crisis was done by the CEO of a very big bank here in the U.S. He was asked by a journalist, "Why are you dancing?" And his response was, "Well, everybody is dancing." If we were staying on the uh, on the sideline, we would be wiped out very rapidly. Unfortunately, that's 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 the truth. Uh, you might be right analytically for a couple of quarters, but you will be pushed against the wall, ex ante. Being exposed right doesn't help you out of out of that, and that's where some sort of collective wisdom could come in. Don't get me wrong, I'm not defending anything and everything what regulators are doing. In that metaphor, dancing is taking these risks, which ex post we discovered, oh, this this is what caused the problem. Um, and it's funny, from a sort of just collective standpoint, it's, it's like a bank run. Everyone does the same thing. Yeah. And then sometimes that's problematic, and other times it's just what you have to do, I guess, is what you're saying. And so finding that balance between the risk-taking and the boringness, the regulation and the entrepreneurship. The answers aren't obvious, I guess, is what you're saying a little bit. Uh, we won't have an answer to that. The, 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 the regulators uh, should try to um, be prepared, supervisors, uh, for, for accidents. But uh, squeezing out accidents is, of course, not the way to go. They happen. Often along rather similar schemes. So I'm much more reminded, by the way, of what currently is happening here of the SNL crisis in the, in the late 80s, early, early 1990s. When the regulation was taken out, nobody recalls its name anymore, uh, which prevented banks from paying proper rates on deposits. So depositors went to money market funds uh, hence banks, savings and loans, which are very different, by the way, from European savings banks. Savings and loans um, had to take some risk on, on the asset side. These uh, things were at the time um, highly profitable for, for a while. 
Later on, they were called uh, junk debt, ex-ante high-risk uh, assets, and turned out to be highly problematic for the savings and loans uh, industry at, at the time because they lost depositors, had to take more risk on, on, on the asset side. So some of these schemes are not difficult to, to interpret, to understand. So be prepared, take, take eclectic perspectives. And then it's hard to be completely prepared because, as you've said, if you hedge away, we talked about hedging away maturity risk, but hedging away all risks, I mean, someone's taking it on somewhere, right? Is 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 what you're saying? Yeah, and it would mean uh, hedging away. Hedging comes at a cost, uh, so it has immediate consequences for your profit and loss account. And uh, if you do that as an individual, so there's there's in many of these issues a fallacy of composition. Again, Samuelson. That's actually the, the textbook I was raised on somehow. Please explain the fallacy of composition. It goes like this. One f farmer has a, a great harvest. He is so happy. Suddenly, it turns out all of his neighbors also have great harvests. Terrible. <laughs> Oversupply. Price is going down. <laughs> they don't... Rec so, fallacy of composition means what might work out at an individual level, doesn't turn out to work if you aggregate. And that was one of the lessons drawn of the 2007-9 crisis. Ever since we talk of macro, macro prudential, before it was a forbidden word, although the BIS uh, had thought about it, which is about systemic risk. So if everybody's doing the same, if everybody's using the same value at risk, model and selling at the same time liquidity in market is evaporates so uh, individuals cannot take such a, a collective or systemic view it would be self-defeating but um, that's the charge of regulators and supervisors to think about not the micro prudential but the macro perspective ex ante well thank you for giving us all these different levels of perspective and, and going everywhere from regions or, or local areas to, um, say, the global banking system. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask you a lightning round of quick questions, quick answers, uh, just to have a little bit of fun here. So let's get started. What is your favorite source of information about the global economy? Data. Any particular data? Yeah, IMF, World Bank data. Most reliable, you, 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 you find, yes. What piece of economic data do you wish was regularly collected and published but isn't today? So what we don't have, if you do not have access uh, to uh, proprietary data, I would like to see more high-frequency data for students and, and researchers not having access to these very expensive. Can you give an example of what, what uh, is a, isn't available well, for, easily? For example... There's always this issue about CDSs, credit default swaps, very narrow market, suddenly moving wildly. And if you knew that there might be just one big trader behind that, that would, might calm down the, the game significantly. But then also education about financial literacy about these data, which is really a public policy issue because we are all concerned, mm. even soccer players. <laughs> Especially some soccer players. What is your deepest cause for concern about the global economy? 
My deepest cause for concern is that I have really difficulties in understanding valuations and the share of an asset which used to be thought of as almost unproductive real estate. Mm, which again, our McKinsey Global Institute Global Balance Sheet study has revealed is I think two thirds of the global balance sheet, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And it has been worsening with the pandemic. What's your greatest source of hope for the global economy? My greatest source of hope for the global economy would be educating people, would be investing in human capital, would be investing in the capacity of, of, of people to, to adjust, would be learning, 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 which flies in the face of the stupidity which we now see with regard to all this segmentation of the world, to all this fragmentation. So that's a scary environment we're currently living in. But human capital is the most important investment we can make. Who's your favorite central banker of all time? Favorite central banker of all times? Oh, that's... I don't have a lightning... I, I, I could name a couple of them. So, a German central banker, very down-to-earth. Paul Volcker, quasi-German, his, his, his heritage is northern German, and he was as brutal. <laughs> Mervyn King, who has been a great inspirator. Ben Bernanke, who was so good to have him around at the, at the time of the uh, great financial. I could continue. It's, it's a little bit, you know, whom I really also like, not that much benounced, Ignacio Visco, Banca d'Italia. It is like asking you who Honestly, you're... very honestly, he's a, he's a great guy. And he's written a book on the importance of human capital. Very good. I'm sorry, it is like asking your favorite football player of all time. Not, not necessarily easy. Wolfgang Overath. Oh, maybe it is easy. <laughs> when do you expect the U.S. federal funds rate will start to decline? During this year. What's the best way for a business leader to glean what decisions central bankers will make? Listen carefully to what they are talking which makes you a little bit uncertain, for example, if you listen to what, and which is important, because it captures the uncertainty of the environment. What you see, two very good central bankers in the US, just talking today in view of the same data. One is suggesting to be careful, another is putting an emphasis on uh, keeping a lid on inflation, and both have a, have a, have a good view. What's one piece of advice you'd give to listeners of this podcast? Ah, read a good introductory principles textbook and start from there to, to think about data and take an eclectic view. Don't bet on one horse only. Jim Tobin, don't put all your eggs on one theory. What would you advise a university student to study today? So I like e economics, and I try to convince my students here to get away from government. Don't tell it anybody. <laughs> but uh, I do think the importance of understanding data uh, is is increasing, and it's much easier than it used to be. We have great tools for free. You don't have to pay for uh, research tools, and play around with data, and you get the exp the impression that it's. You shouldn't be too cocksure. 
And what would you be doing professionally if you weren't doing what you're doing today? I haven't. I have no good answer to that. <laughs> I don't. I simply don't. I, re, I really like to do the what I what I do, and I don't understand it as work. That's wonderful. It's a substitute to hear. for football. Anzamat, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your insights and perspectives. My pleasure, Michael. Really, thank you so much. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.